This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I was about to create a pitch in my head of like what we do. We're just at the intersection of technology and oil and gas and all the great things that happen in this space. Oh, that's what our guest Alex asked. He's like, what do you guys actually do? I'm like, man, if I had a fucking dime for every time someone asks us that, I don't know what we do. I don't, I don't, don't know what the answer is to give to you. I just I podcast, man. <laughs> so really quickly, you guys are awesome. The growth of the podcast has just been astronomical. So by all podcast stats, we're just blowing everything out of the water. And that's all because of you guys listening, you guys sharing, you guys reviewing. So big shout out to y'all. Big shout out to all of the guests that we've had so far. Big shout out to us, to ourselves for putting in the work. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to thank myself. <laughs> I want to thank myself for putting in them long nights and weekends. We also, if you guys don't know, we have a vlog, Digital Wildcatters. Go check that out. And at the time of recording, we're like, we're so close to 200 subscribers, which doesn't sound like a lot, but on YouTube, it is so hard. It's so hard to grow Man, on YouTube. Like, we've just been clawing our way up to 200. We're so yeah. close. Thank we're getting a ton so. of views. I think what it is, is I think a lot of you out there listening, I don't think that, or give us some feedback on this. I could be wrong. My thesis is that you guys watch a lot of YouTube videos, but you don't actually like log in and like subscribe and like have channels that you watch. I do that hundred percent. So yeah. I'm sure other people do too. I have, I have like 200 channels that I, I watch more YouTube than I watch We should do this. TV. Like, anybody listening, send us a message and give us feedback on our videos. Like let us know if they're shit and you don't watch them in the first place. <laughs> that way we can know if we're just spinning our wheels, but like give us some feedback. Ask us some questions too, because that. What kind of content do you guys want to see yeah, too? I love to know that information. That help us out a lot. So, anyways, I'm excited about this episode today because usually we're more upstream focused. We haven't yep. had a company this far downstream. So, what we got, man? So we've got Alex Chandy, CEO and co-founder of 2DA. That's correct. Okay, yeah. I was making sure I didn't butcher that. <laughs> you got it, man. Yeah. How you doing, Alex? How's it going, man? I'm doing great. Thank Good. you. Good. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to finally meet you guys in yeah. person. I think yeah. Alex was actually. You know, we're talking about this as I mean, I've just been like, it's hard for me to keep up with my messages, but I think Alex was actually one of the first people that reached out to come on the podcast. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll make it happen. And then just got super swamped. So this has been a long time coming. Excited to have you here. Excited to learn about 2DA. So let's just, let's get into it. 40,000 foot view of 2DA. What are you guys doing? Yeah. So 2DA, so we've been, we're a startup, software startup. We've been around for two and a half years now, but essentially what we do is analytics for what they call primary distribution, how barrels get moved out of a refinery and distributed around a very, very diverse network of pipelines, barge marine, truck and rail to make it to the wholesale terminals. The way I describe it to a lot of people is a lot of people don't realize that the gas that you pump out of your gas station, almost 100% of that gasoline was brought there through manual intervention by a whole army of people that sit behind the scenes in this continent of ours. But Four or five thousand so, people. Yeah, so there's literally people just behind a computer screen. That's right. Manually entering in data and information. Right, and making decisions on where a particular barrel will wind up, whether it's gasoline or jet fuel or diesel, what part of the country it goes to, depending on what's available from line space, where the refinery is from a production perspective, and how much inventory they have to handle at the end location so that their customers can pick up on time. Man, I mean, 
just seems ripe for technology. Anytime you have thousands of people that are manually doing a process, it's like there's got to be a computer, an algorithm that can do this in a better fashion. So this will be interesting because Jake and I, you know, we don't ever bullshit anybody. When you start talking about things that are this far downstream, we're by no means experts or even mm-hmm. know a lot. You know, we mostly focus on upstream. So going to have a lot of inquisitive questions for you. They may sound stupid to some people. They're like, man, these guys don't know shit about anything. And you're right. We don't. And, and if then, you're like new to the industry, you have to understand that like upstream, midstream, and downstream really operate like three completely yeah, separate industries. Right. Mm-hmm. I think especially when you're looking at the contrast between upstream and downstream. That's exactly right. Yep. Things are so, so, so different. And it's so hard to, you know, we've done consulting where we're uh, getting some research on the midstream and downstream space. And like the reason that we don't have a lot of midstream or downstream startups in this space is because to be a startup in that space, you have to have billions and billions of dollars because you're essentially building infrastructure, right? Whereas you can go be an ENP with pretty much little to no money, go raise some capital from private equity and go start your own operation. Still, I mean, I'm simplifying that a lot. Obviously, it's a little bit more challenging than that, but it's completely different than having to raise $6 billion to build a refinery or like, you know, the same thing for a Also, pipeline. look at the adoption of technology in the upstream sector is already slow enough. And then yeah. you go move into midstream, downstream, where I think it could probably be a little bit more, you know, you have that bureaucracy and that old, you know, it's just like, I mean, look at anytime you're building out a, a plant or facility, a pipeline. I mean, those projects are scoped out in, I don't know what, five-year terms probably. And so it's hard to get any adoption of technology because everything's just, you know, so drawn out in those sectors. So it's already hard enough mm-hmm. in upstream. I imagine it's even harder and downstream and midstream. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a it's not a fail fast industry, right? It's one that requires a lot of planning, a lot of capital, put steel in the ground, and then there's a very long payoff curve associated with it. You don't recoup your investment for years and years coming out of that. But from a technology perspective, it's a very interesting sector. There's a lot of pretty sophisticated planning and algorithms that go into running that part of the business because you know, at the end of the day, you're dealing with distance and time. You're dealing with how do I get stuff scheduled out of a refinery? How do I get it to a wholesale terminal? And this this terminal may be seven miles away from a refinery. It could be 700 miles away from a refinery. I got pipelines. I got marine. I got to balance all these things. And I do that literally daily, right? Maybe even a couple of times a day is I'm balancing what I have available, what's in the line, what's in inventory, what am I projecting out for the next 7 to 15 to 30 days? And I'm making operational decisions. So when I say it's, there's a tremendous amount of human intervention that kind of has to be because you're dealing with such a disparate network to begin with. What we're solving is we're bringing technology in there to enhance that decision-making process, right? So that folks aren't spending their time grabbing data, putting it together, trying to figure out where is my barrel at any one point in time so I can actually make a decision on it. That's the part that 2DA steps in. We grab all this data, disparate sources. So it's like we were talking about earlier, we're doing a pilot right now where we're taking about 14 different disparate sources. They come at different refresh rates, different formats, different data structures, and we're pulling that all together and enabling our customer not only to see where the barrel is, but we're overlaying analytics on top of that so they can make a smarter decision on what they're doing. That sounds so much like WellHub, except in a downstream <laughs> application. Yeah, yeah, there's a great <laughs> parallel there. Yeah. yeah, it's the downstream. We should just combine forces and just take over. We should need somebody in the midstream sector. Yeah, right? no, we just need the, the, the midstream and got all the pieces to the puzzle. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What was your background? Did you come from the downstream sector or 
Yeah. So my background, so there are two of us that founded the company, myself and David Corthon. What makes it a little bit more challenging is my co-founder actually lives in Australia. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but, <laughs> but he's spending a lot of time here in North America. So I came, I came into this from a trading background. I've been a trader my entire career until I left the trading in 28, 2008. I started off right out of college as a bond trader in New York at J.P. Morgan, was back then Chase Manhattan Bank. And then I switched into commodities after I did my master's here in Houston. And my, my whole point was after I'd done my master's, I was going to go back to New York and go back to, go back to fixed income trading. And I actually wound up getting my best job offer was from Coca-Cola. And I wound up working in their commodities department and doing a lot of the supply-demand analysis for all the soft commodities. So Coke's one of the biggest buyers of, of sugar, corn, orange juice. And I was based here in Houston at Minute Maid, because Minute Maid was, is still here in Houston. And I was one of the commodity analysts, and I was helping out with the hedging programs. And being a food trader in an oil town, it's not a lot of career progression in that and I switched to energy and so my background in energy trading is actually natural gas and gas liquids start off with Duke Energy and then did a big you know typical trader rotation you work with different shops here in town typically two to three years at a time so I traded the entire natural gas value chain into you know base petrochemicals so aromatics olefins left trading in 2008, that's where my co-founder and I met each other. We were both hired by a large consulting firm. And we were on what was called a globally deployed platform. I mean, we work with customers all around the world. And I was helping a lot of trading shops, whether national oil companies, international oil companies, petrochemical companies, trading companies, you know, deal with technology issues, deal with how they actually book deals, how they got their trades into the system, make sure that they were taken all the way down to invoicing how they manage the physical barrel underneath that. And I did that for seven years. And one thing we realized, my co-founder and I, is companies would spend a ton of money either modifying an accounting system to do trading activities or taking a trading system and trying to make it work. And the one thing they could never do is get view into their barrels. Where was their barrel at any one point in time, which is the most important decision that they make on a day-on-day basis. Anything in the cash month that's today, anything that's moving, as soon as that barrel starts to move is when you have the opportunity to lose money on it or you have the opportunity to make better money than you projected on it. And all that data was sitting in disparate data sets or Excel spreadsheets and personalized data stores on someone's laptop or their desktop. And there was never one cohesive view on where the barrels were in, in an enterprise's system and what the decisions were being made in order to monetize that barrel. So you have all that data siloed in these different places. And so then the traders having to spend all their time aggregating this data to make a, you know, educated and insightful decision. And I imagine by the time they get around to actually collecting all that data, they've probably already lost some opportunity, you know, to either make a profitable decision or, you know, could lose some money, I, I would assume. It seems like the... the I'd imagine it'd be like trading stocks before, like, computers, right? That's exactly right, yeah. You're waiting for the ticker to tell you what happened 15 minutes ago. So then everybody's on the same playing field. That's right? exactly what was that? Right. What was that? What was that book about? Was it Flash Boys or something like that? And they were talking about, like, upgrading they, the... They ran that, that fiber optic network from yeah. Chicago to New York, and, like, that just, like, millisecond faster 
access to them made such a big difference because I got mm-hmm. access to that data quicker to make profitable. And it was like a huge, huge capex. Yeah, that's oh. right, and that's when they started co-locating their servers right next to the Nasdaq and the and the New York Stock Exchange servers. So the thing, so the data just jump a few centimeters. And yeah. <laughs> And that's what started off what we call, you know, quantitative or algorithmic trading, right? So those guys are trading down at the millisecond level. Mm -hmm. Oil is a different story, but take that same concept and take it from days to hours, right? That makes a huge difference. So it's not only opportunity lost, but opportunity gained. Mm -hmm. When you talk about, you know, like in downstream or even in upstream, you talk about crude gathering and bringing it into a wholesale terminal, bringing it in to a processing facility like a refinery or a fractionating plant in the case of natural gas, a lot of the value that you have in your physical infrastructure, your pipeline, your storage terminals, you know, the value there is typically sub-optimized because you don't have the data to properly give you a good view of what is that barrel worth at that point in time and what do Mm -hmm. I do with it, right? Because I got many options. And that's typically where, you know, Typical software, supply chain software, you think about this, it's a big supply chain, fails in our industries because you cross over from that point of, I'm just making a widget and I just got to get it here and I got to, you know, get it sold. You cross over the point where that widget, in this case, a barrel of oil, its value is changing, right? And it's being set by the market. No one sets it, right? It's an emergent system that's setting it. And I got to react to what the market's telling me. I got to react to the differentials. I got to react to the basis. And I got to make a good decision on what I'm doing. Otherwise, you know, the biggest issue a lot of big enterprises have is not that they lost value, you know, in the external markets because they're not making the most out of the value that they have in their system. Billions of dollars that they put into place gives them, you know, there's a tremendous amount of value associated with it. If you can monetize it, you're sub-optimized, right? And the data is available. It's coming at a faster pace than you. You think about this huge pipes of data coming into this constraint point called an Excel spreadsheet, right? There's only so much you can do with that data. You can't consume any more. I could give you a ton of it, but if you're down to an Excel spreadsheet and it's already 60 tabs big and it's 20 megs in size, there's not much you can add to that, right? And that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of what, you know, a cloud native application can do. You're not constrained by the amount of data you can take. You're not constrained by the compute power that you can put on that data. Absolutely. So you guys go over to this consulting firm. Obviously, you know, you're seeing these problems firsthand. How did you guys, how, how did this relationship between you and your co-founder manifest? Did you guys say like, hey, we got to create a solution to this problem? Fuck it. Let's go out and do it. How, how, how did this come, <laughs> yeah, come to be? Quite literally. <laughs> that's, that's what happened. We were, you know, it's a big global consulting firm. So we, my co-founder was working in the, in the Asian business unit. So he would be working with the large Asian refining companies, the big LNG companies, all the way from Australia, Korea to China. I was doing a lot of Europe. I spent six months in the Middle East helping Saudi Aramco set up their own trading operation. So we would meet at certain points, right? Because we were part of the same practice. So we'd have big outsourced offshore units either in India or the Philippines. So we would meet there from time to time. And we would talk about that and we'd say, are you seeing what I'm seeing? The same problem we had when we were traders where we were dealing with these huge spreadsheets and we're dealing with, you know, your, your scheduler was your absolute right-hand man. And if they weren't good at getting you the data, you were not able to make good decisions. Are you seeing that today in these places where these folks are spending a 
gobs of money on technology and you go back six months later and everyone's still extracting data back out of those systems and using it to make decisions. He's like, yeah. We, we essentially sat there, we're having a beer in Bangalore and we said, you know what? The problem is not that different from what Google Maps or Uber does on a day-to-day basis. Granted, they're working with tons more users. They're capturing way more data, but it's essentially the same problem. And that's what sort of sparked the idea. I said, what is it? If it's a combination of Google Maps, do I know where my barrel is in my system? I can look at it from a map perspective. And then, you know, what has Uber done is they've taken two parts of the uncertainty. Where's my driver and how far away is he from him? Right. And they've made that available to you in real time. You take the same thing. It's where's my barrel and when is it going to get here? And what are the options I have to do with it? You've essentially replicated the problem albeit in a much more smaller fashion, right? And that's sort of what got us thinking about that. And then today with a combination of open source code, very, very bright technical folks, and the ability, you know, the, the barrier to entry of starting a software firm has absolutely collapsed over the last five, 10 years. So you can go out there and build a prototype and then show it to your customer and say, look, this is the way we think it should be happening. And we think we can solve these problems that you've had. And that's what happened. 2016, we left. We built a small prototype out of Austin. We took it around with our connections. We showed it to a bunch of guys that we'd known as traders or folks that used to be our customers. And I think we showed it about nine different companies and every single one of them said, look, if you guys can show us a working stack that we can put our data in, we'd love to pilot this because you're exactly right. This is the problem we have. We can't tell where we are at the end of the month basis where we thought we were going to be. It's kind of funny to me because the whole time I'm thinking about a couple months back when we're talking to Rob Jackson about, remember he, he approached us and he's like, so we capture pig farts. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, he's like the methane from pig and cow shit and we can't track it where it's at in, in the system. And they were talking about like, can we develop a software that tracks that? And this is essentially what you guys have built. I wasn't following his logic then just because I didn't understand what they were trying to do. But I was just so caught up on pig farts. I, I, I was kind of like, yeah, I was kind of like mesmerized. I was Apparently like, that's, a, that's a big market up in, in like. Did you know this? I did not. Yeah, so they take this cow and pig shit and they essentially, you know, put this big tarp over it and they capture the methane from it yeah. and then they're transporting it and selling it as energy. Yeah, I had no clue. I think like methane is like $15 in BTU. Yeah, I don't know. It's something ridiculous. I want to go on the record quoting prices because oh, yeah. you have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I looked at methane, but that was also like five years ago. So, <laughs> so okay, so you guys, you guys start prices. this. <laughs> you guys start this up out of Austin. Your co-founder David, correct? Yeah. So what what is what is his skill set? Is it, did he was he an energy trader as well? Yeah. Same okay. Thing so me. Yeah. so neither one of you guys are like the technical guys. We're behind, not behind the software. Okay. So how did you guys go about starting this project? Did you just bootstrap it? Did you guys we put did. your own capital in? How yeah. how how'd y'all go about? Yeah, doing we that? absolutely bootstrapped it in the beginning. We put our own money into it, and we said, look, let's build a very quick and dirty prototype. And we'll put a bunch of you know made up data into it, but generally show essentially what are, what the workflow looks like, what the problems are. And then we'll take it around and we'll show it in the market. And if people say, hey, this is something that we have utility for, or if people would say to us, look, we're not interested in it, we got this solved, that would have been our point where you say either we're going to go take this commercial or we're not, right? We got such a good reaction from the folks that we talked to that we actually wound up saying at that certain point, say, okay, let's go raise a bit of money. So we did a small seed round. And 
honestly here we did it all out of houston it was a lot of oil and gas guys retired angels you know small not not a lot of institutions invested in us we did a seed round which allowed us to build out the full stack or at least what the prototype would look like and then we ba- went back and said look we have a we have a full stack prototype and we'd like someone to give us data right and we were shopping that around and you usually get the usual pushback from large oil companies we got i think in you know looking back at it we got very lucky we got one of the large refineries in north america took a look at us and said look we've tried to do this three or four times ourselves and we failed every single time you know we'll give you a s- sample of our data we're not going to pay you for it but we'll give it to you and if you guys can show us what you can do with that we'd be happy to go to pilot so gave us the data in june of 17 by september we had it all in the system we showed it to them they loved it we started the pilot in early 18 we're towards the end of the pilot we're wrapping it up we already got customer number 2 in contract negotiations we got a couple other behind them so we're now at the stage where we've proved out the concept this customer is using it in a particular part of their system we got two pilots that we're working on getting started so you know right now we're thinking by june july we could be up four deployments right and Very cool and the the weird thing about it is Eight months ago, it was still David and I. It was still two guys and a bunch of contractors. And today, we have 15 people working for us. Wow. So. <laughs> Scaling up quick. How'd you guys build the technology? Are either you, you like, tech-savvy on, on, on slinging code, or did you guys find some good contractors? We did. We started off, yeah. and we, this is sort of the risk-free way to do it, right? You start off mm-hmm. with a bunch of contractors. You don't bring them onto your overhead, right? You pay as you go. We just said, look, this is the outcome. Right. This is what the data looks like. These are what the use cases look like. Build us a stack that can do this. And it was a lot of back and forth. Now, in the, in the course of doing that, we've become a lot more tech savvy. But neither one of us can write a code, a line of code beyond a couple of queries to look at data. But we built the stack iteratively that way, and we continue to evolve it. What we've done is, in the course of working with contractors, we found really smart guys you know, out of Austin that were willing to jump in and take the risk and, and join us. And our VP of engineering wound up that way. He started off as a contractor and he said, look, I, I think I can do this, right? Once he figured out what it is that we're trying to do. And, you know, we've built the stack using him, right? So it's it's a bit of, and I think a lot of oil and gas startups, especially in software, you go through that. It's, you'll have tech domain that don't really understand the business domain. And it's, a you got to marry that together. Part of the reason why we wound up in Austin is you have a lot of tech domain in Houston that really understands legacy tech. They don't understand new tech. Right? Absolutely. So yeah, we've talked about that several times on the show. Where you know, if you have like for well help example, looking for React developers in Houston can be one. It's a it's a smaller pool yep. available, and then the oil companies you know give them a two hundred thousand dollars salary to That's come in house. Exactly right. So you have to compete yep. with that. So yep. it, it makes it hard to find the all-stars to join your team. It's, it, you know, it's easy, the caveat being, it's easy to find junior devs, but you not don't necessarily want to take that risk out the gate whenever you have a limited amount of capital. Correct. You need to build an MVP so that you can land a pilot. The junior devs come in whenever you've already got the MVP done, you've got a few pilots, bring in some good guys and take the risk, but it's such a it's a, such a huge risk to bring those guys in to where you don't get to that MVP that stage. That is correct. Yep. Because they're not experienced enough. And so finding those senior devs with you know 10 plus years experience in a potentially a new stack is extremely hard, like Colin was saying. So are you guys based in Austin? The whole team well, we're, we're actually based here in Houston. Our 
complete engineering staff sits in Austin. Okay, right? yeah, gotcha. That's where our VP of engineering sits. But here in Houston, it's myself, my COO, and our data science guys sit here. Okay. Right, but tech is out in Austin, and it's exactly what you were saying. We're able to find the senior dev guys in Austin. Here, it's too easy for those guys to get paid really good money. It's hard to rip them out of an ongoing gig, whereas in Austin, you just have constant churn, right? Because it's a startup town. So guys go into startup, they learn the stack, they pop out, they have a much much more open risk profile mm-hmm. right, to doing startups than you do in Houston for for senior people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think something interesting as well that we've probably talked about previously, but shout out to Joe Meadows from Opsalot telling us about this, but Montreal, Canada is supposedly another hotspot for developers. So if you're thinking about going out on your own, developing a technology, supposedly you can scoop up really good developers up there for like $40,000 USD. Yeah. Well, I think it's, so Joe, don't, don't shoot me. But I think I think this is the numbers that he wrote down. It was like, uh, I guess we're giving the secret away. Now everybody's gonna be flooding to Montreal. But whatever. Montreal's about to be lit. We've, I know we've, <laughs> we've, to we talked about French, though, right? yeah. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've talked about opening up like a well hub office up there because it makes so much sense. But you know, hundred thousand dollars here is one hundred thirty thousand dollars in Canadian dollars, and then there's the subsidies. That was the big thing that Joe was talking about. So it's like they're getting paid sixty thousand dollars, but they're I think the government is comping twenty thousand of that. So you're only paying forty thousand for highly qualified developers because that's like all there is up yeah. there. Yeah. Strip clubs and developers. Strip clubs and developers. That's what I've been told. Yeah. Plus you're in the same time zone too. Yeah, true. So you don't have to yeah. worry about, you know, talking to, you know, India at, you know, three o'clock in the morning or anything like right. that. Right. And that, and that's something I'd always tell someone. There's always a temptation to say, hey, how can I get volume for money as opposed to value for money? I would not want to try and do that. You know, try and do dev out of an offshore location because you got, especially in the beginning when you're building the MVP and there's so many pivots that you have to go through, it's really good to have your tech team very close and very intimate, right? You lose a lot. And we looked in the beginning, we looked at Costa Rica, we looked at India and yeah, you know, the numbers are compelling, but the risk was just too high, right? Because you have limited capital and a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. We, We have a hard, a very high hurdle. You know, you're coming in and saying, hey, look, I can solve this problem better than all your legacy tech. People are like, okay, show me. But you only have X amount of time mm-hmm. to do it, right? They're I think that's kind of, it's kind of a whole is remote. I was actually in an argument with my wife this morning about it because she works remotely for some big startups out of Silicon Valley. And so that model works for her. But like as a whole, like I just do not think remote working is the future in any capacity because there's nothing more powerful than a team huddled around a whiteboard and having that intimate relationship of attacking the problems that are in front of you. And especially in the early stages of figuring things out, when things change so quickly, the scope of things change, the paths that you go down change. It's just so hard to replicate that whenever you're, you know, spread it all over, you know, across the U.S., I think it works in certain situations. And I think once maybe you already have a, a really, really well-oiled team and you said, hey, we can kind of spread out a little bit, then if you guys are working and you're communicating very well, then you could, you could do it. But especially in the early stages, I think it's almost impossible to get anything pushed out if you're I not just feel like room. when you're building product in the early stages, you have to be like a Navy SEAL team and you yeah. have to be very close-knit group just executing. You know, there's only a face paint, everything. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking... You know. Yeah, I'm talking machine guns, just like going to fucking <laughs> war. <laughs> so, okay, so that's really interesting that you guys, you bootstrapped this. You went and raised a little bit of capital to build up the dev team, and that sounds like it's scaling up pretty quick. You guys go from just, you know, you two and some contractors to 15 people on the team. You have a pilot. 
you have a second one in the works. So what are you guys, this is like the, the part for me. So I'm assuming your, your clients are the refineries, correct? That's who you're selling to? Currently now the refining companies and potentially any big wholesaler, right? So there, there are companies out there that they move a lot of barrels. The only difference between them and refineries, they just don't own the refinery, right? So they buy the barrels on long team, long-term evergreen contracts, but they deal with the same stuff. Yeah. So what's like, what's the, the market size for you and the sales cycles look like? Because I imagine there's not a ton of players in this space. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I don't know. But like when you look at EMPs, you know, there's thousands of EMPs, yeah. there's thousands of customers to go sell to. Is that a challenge for you in this sector? It, it is and it isn't. Let's put it that way, right? It isn't because it's a very defined set of folks that you can go after, right? So in, in North America and like say in the U.S., there are roughly about 154 refining companies that actually own refineries, right? And even between them, it's a bit Pareto distributed. When 60% of the refineries are owned by 10 companies, and then the rest are a whole bunch of mom and pops, so one or two refineries here and there called mom and pops. They're still big, big companies, right? <laughs> I was saying, is, is there such thing as a mom and pop in the refinery space? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> These are billion-dollar companies, right? But they're not two hundred. Just billion. oldest refinery. Over That'd here. be like so degrading. Like you own a billion-dollar asset, and you're like, yeah, this little mom and pop <laughs> shit operation over here only worth two billion. <laughs> yeah. So from uh, when you think about it, look, we're we're a cloud-native application. We're a software as a service. We rely on subscriptions, right? So it's a limited market when you think about it that way. But if you if you if you flip it around the other way and you look at the sheer number of barrels that are produced. That's a completely different story. We, on rough estimates, just EIA numbers, we produce about almost 5 billion barrels of refined products clean here in the U.S. annually. And if you consider about 20% of them trade hands several times before it's either burned at the exhaust tip or exported out, it's a 7 billion barrel market, right? So the way we measure ourselves is how many barrels is our software managing right now? Yeah. And that's our goal is to get to that. Does that lead into how you guys price this? Like what is your pricing structure? It sort of does. Yes. You think about it that way is, you know, the number of people on our platform doesn't really strain our system at all. It's the number of barrels that we're managing, right? That's where the volume is and what you're doing with those barrels. So that's exactly right. That's exactly how our pricing works, right? It is a service and the service is we're bringing all this data that's been disparate, we're cleaning it up, we're making it available, we're making it useful to you. But on top of that, we're providing you the analytics and how you're actually managing that data, plus the ability to look back and see how effective you are in managing those barrels through your system. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, if you think about it, these are, that's how these companies report, right? This is how many barrels I produced, this is what I sold, this is how much I made, gross margin, net margin, whatever. So that's essentially how we. So you guys are you guys looking at your model being like a licensing fee for the software, and then volume on top of that, like however much volume gets put through the system that you analyze. You know, you have certain tiers. What I'm just like curious, like how how do you price software for a problem like this? Because it's a lot of data coming through, and it's just a lot of variables that go into it. Yeah, there's typically a baseline feature, just having the software up and running that just covers the infrastructure, and then it's. It's on top of that, it's indexed to the number of barrels that Mm -hmm. we push through. It works for the customer as well. 
if they have a refinery and turnaround or they're in a low season, the number of barrels go, their subscription price goes down and it, it, it flows. According yeah, it to scales, it scales doing, up right? and down. And I mean, exactly. of course, if they're doing more volume and you guys are saving them, you know, extracting more, the more volume they have, the more value that you're going to extract for them and exactly. that insight. So it makes sense for them to pay more. Exactly. Like and it. you know, it was a, it was a weird thing in the beginning when we came up with that, cause we had looked at the per user seat license stuff. And we, when we pivoted and, and looked at that model, We've had no pushback because mm-hmm. that's just the way the industry thinks about it, right? The industry say, look, I pay $2 a barrel to push in tariff to push it down the pipeline. Why wouldn't I spend X amount, some fraction of that to make sure that it got down to the right place or it was scheduled appropriately, right? They, they think about it that way as well. Mm-hmm. I think that was the most surprising thing from us. We didn't get a lot of pushback on that. Well, I think it's, you know, you kind of, with that model, you're aligned with them, right? And it's like, look, you're going to pay for, the more you use it, yep. the more you pay and yep. the more you should, technically should be saving. So it, it just makes sense for everybody instead of you just coming in and saying, we're going to charge on a per user basis. And then the whole time they have in the back of their mind, they're trying to figure out like, well, are we really getting value out of this deal if we're paying, you know, X amount of money? But if you just kind of peg it to their their production volume, then it makes sense because it's scaling up and down, you know, whether they're in a low season or high season. Correct. So, That's exactly right. I like it take that take that barrier away from them of having to figure out if they're getting their value or not. Right. And that's part of what we're addressing here, right? This is a front office application, right? It is supposed to help you make better decisions and help you monetize your barrels and, and, and figure out whether you've done that properly or not. It's not an application they would sit and say it's a cost center, right? It's, it's like my Microsoft O365. I just pay for it because everyone uses it or it's my accounting system. This is, if used properly, is it enables revenue generation or, or cost mitigation, right? So the, it's, it's, the software will show its value or it won't, depending on how you use it. Yep. And it should be priced accordingly. Absolutely. Right? Performance-based. I like it. So you guys have been at this for several years now. Is there any challenges that really stick out in your mind? I mean, obviously, we all know oil and gas adoption of technology can be a barrier. But is there anything, you know among building the team, the early stages of developing the software, anything that sticks out in your mind that's been extremely challenging? Well, yeah, <laughs> a couple of things, right? It's very hard to find people, right? Good people. I kind of call it like at this stage, early stage, you know, your first 20 to 40 employees, we kind of view them as they have to be, they have to be glass eaters, right? They have to have that ownership mentality. They're coming in as owners, right? They're getting equity in the company, so we spend a lot of time sort of fine-tuning that and, and really looking for people who are want to build a company as opposed to people looking for a salary and a lifestyle associated do you have any? It. Do you have any process of how you guys find people like that? Because it's extremely challenging. And Jake? We're, we're going through this process right now about we're about to bolster up multiple teams and hire a ton of people. And so we've been talking a lot just kind of from like a 30,000 foot yep. view of what do we want in these different roles? What do we value? As most people know, Colin never went to college. I dropped out. So, like, we really don't give a shit about education. We give more a shit about what can you do yes. and what you're capable of doing and, you know, just being resourceful and being able to, like, educate yourself, move fast, work hard. But then finding, finding those people, like you said, that take ownership and are willing to eat glass because those are the types of people. I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about your first 20 to 40 hires. Think about the first five to 10 hires, yeah. how critical those are. I yeah, mean, those very, can, make, those can right. make or break yep. a startup. I mean, 
like think think about it. You start you start burning expenses. Yeah, you start burning through your cash, and you've got a team that doesn't execute. You're fucked. So it's so important. And I think you know I heard that quote the other day that was hire slow, fire fast. And I like that because when you're in these early stages, you have to make the correct decisions, and if they aren't the right decisions, you have to address it. Yep, and I'll second that. You know, the biggest mistakes we've made with hiring is when we've hired fast, right, and fired slow, right? And there's nothing more demoralizing when, when you have, you know, someone is subpar performing or someone that's causing issues within a team. And we've taken that to heart. We've learned that the hard way two times now, right? The third time, it's, it's on us. We have no more excuses. But to your point, Colin, it's, the way I see it is you gotta, you got to hire the right leadership and let them build out underneath them right? And give them the autonomy to do that. And if you hire and, you, and you're very, very particular of who you hire, those guys should come or gals should come with their own network, right? And that's what really helps. And on the tech side, it's absolutely critical because you hire the right guys. So our VP of engineering, we hired him and he's just a rock star, right? And he's made our platform what it is and he continues to evolve it and continues to challenge his people underneath to evolve it. The first thing he did is he's like, I got four guys that would join me immediately from his previous experience and they know each other and they know how to work with each other. Right. And that solved that stack. Whereas front office, it's still been, you know, when you talk about admin and data science, you know, we sort of taken that tech model, but it's a little harder to do here in Houston because the community is not as big, but it's really take the time to hire your leadership. Right. And then let your leadership go in and build the stack underneath them of the pyramid of people underneath them they'll solve that problem. Give them the autonomy to solve that problem. I like that a lot. Right. That's good. Yeah, that's great advice. So before we wrap it all up, you guys, you already said that you're about to get your second pilot. You guys have any any goals that you're trying to attain 2019? Sounds like the team's scaling fast, you're coming out with the second pilot. Any Anything that you're looking to really accomplish? Yeah, our, our stretch goal, and I don't look at it financially right now because you know we're a startup, but our stretch goal is we want to have a billion barrels under management, right? I'm projecting right now in the middle of 2020, but you know if things kind of schedule, fall the way we expect them or we hope they will we may get there by the end of 2019 right okay so we're going to bring you we're going to bring you in beginning of Q2 2020 I'll hold, you hold to me that. to I'm that hold you right. to that goal yeah. yep <laughs> the other thing just very quickly you talked about you know sort of issues and troubles as a startup i think the biggest one in, in oil and gas is is the sales cycle you know the sales cycle will kill you in in this industry because it usually takes you know, three to six months from first contact to closing a deal, right? And for a startup, you know, days and weeks make a difference between revenue and no revenue, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We've talked about this, I don't know how many times, but when you're in a startup, like, I don't think a lot of people understand the sales cycles that oil and gas has. And I think that's why you see so many startups fizzle in this space mm-hmm. because they're not I think able it's important. to calculate what burn rate's going to be realistically. Yeah, yeah, and then also being able to calculate what is the sales compensation going to be because it can't be too heavy on the commission side, especially in the early stages. I think it's something that can, that can change over time. But understanding that you don't want your sales guys absolutely starving and then leaving in the middle of a sales cycle right. when they're halfway through closing a deal, understanding that the sales cycle is a year, year and a half, could be two years long. Obviously, I'm sure that's probably the case in y'all space. In our space, it's the same thing. But if you're working with like mid-size independent operators you can close but it like, there's so much dude within the quarter there's so much fucking opportunity like i had a drilling engineer reach out to me yesterday it's like hey great information on this podcast what i never hear about you guys talk about is how did y'all leave 
y'all's jobs and go do this because, you know, at a certain point you can work on the side, but you got to take that leap and whether you take funding, you bootstrap it, whatever it is, but there's so much fucking opportunity in this space to come work with for a 2DA and just eat shit for a year or two. You're not going to have that $200,000 salary, whatever it is, but you can come contribute to the team, get a piece, get a piece of the pie. You're part of the movement. And then you build something great. You know, acquisition comes five years later, whatever it is. And now you've got a little, a little stack of cash that you can go do your next thing. Like everyone always thinks that you have to go create something from scratch, but there's already teams out there doing this mm-hmm. and you can come in and be that also like you talk about sales like dude yeah, look, if you never, look at a fucking tech, technical salesperson in oil and gas makes great money and i think that's one of the hardest things that we've seen from startups you know we always talk about the developer perspective but talk about being able to hire a sales team like it's hard to do in oil and gas because these guys can go make so much money selling whatever yeah, if you don't know what technical sales in oil and gas is, it's it's somebody who has a lot of technical expertise, but is also able to sell. Yeah, also able to sell. And so these, it's not uncommon for these guys to make you know two hundred plus as base salary, and then yeah, unlimited compensation on top of that. We know guys who make eight, nine hundred, over a million dollars a year yeah, as smart, sales guys. smart, smart guys. Yeah. You know they they deserve that. But you know, I think on that, I think one of the most important skills going back to talking about okay, like making the leap into doing your own thing. It's the ability not just to sell in the traditional sense, but the ability to sell the vision. Yes. And it's the ability to sell on early employees also in the vision to come join your team to eat shit for the next couple of years until you guys get funding, you get pilots, and your cash flow positive. Correct. That's extremely important. So if you don't have the ability to do that, partner up with somebody who does because that is so important. Because if you can't get a team behind you and you can't get capital behind you, none of this is ever going to work in the you beginning have to, before you even take it to the you market. Have to be, you have to be scrappy. Like you're going to be bootstrapping yeah. some way. I mean, it's very rare that you're going to go out and raise $60 million and you just have unlimited resources to hire the best talent. I mean, you're either going to have to get scrappy on developing the product, building the team, and convincing people of the vision. It's it's going to come one way or another. Yeah, and two things associated with that is in the beginning, they buy you. They buy you, the founder, not your software. Because what they're looking at is, okay, is this guy convincing enough? And do I have a feeling that he's going to pull it? off right does he have enough skin in the game to pull it off so that's very big in the beginning it's just you it's your vision that they're buying right after that you know once you get your your momentum going then the machine will just take over it's just amazing to me that you know the company that i founded we talk about 12 months ago it's now it's its own little being right and people are doing stuff being proactive taking initiative solving problems without me having to be involved in everything that will happen naturally I think from a technical sales perspective or or hiring perspective, it's the same thing. They buy into you, right? They buy into you as a leader and say, is this the kind of guy that would, you know, that I would want to follow down this path? Because not only do I believe what he's saying, but he's doing what he's saying he's doing. And he's convincing me that, you know, he's hustling, gives me the motivation to come in and hustle. You know, I tell a lot of folks, especially the younger guys to join us, the data scientists to join us, you join us. In six months, you'll know more about this data set than anyone else in each one of these enterprise customers. You'll be a valued commodity to them. So just put that aside. Even if we go, you know, belly up, you know, you'll have recruiters chasing you because you have learned a lot more. Yep. To your point about, I, I kind of feel like in the beginning, it's better to bootstrap. It's better to go hand to mouth because it focuses you. You see a lot of, today I was reading on PitchBook, someone raised $120 million, just went bankrupt. 
I think sometimes you have a lot of money, you tend to you kind of tend to waste it on stuff, right? And you lose focus. I think that hunger is good in in the beginning. It's not ideal, but it's good. Right? Yeah, being overcapitalized is definitely a problem, and especially when you bootstrap and you're putting your own money, time, and resources, and you're taking the risk, then you're managing that risk and that burn a lot more than if you raised 120 million dollars dragging your whole family through it too right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah there's there, there's a lot that goes to it so man that was a great conversation i'm excited about this i learned something today you know just not being in this in this sector, it's refreshing so. to understand that the downstream has the same problems upstream yeah yeah i mean create a well hub for midstream now i wonder if, <laughs> if you've created the 2DA or the well hub for midstream, reach out to us. I want to, I want to hear Maybe we can is. all combine for <laughs> All right, so Alex, can people find you on LinkedIn? They can, yes. Okay, so put that in the show notes. Also, your website is 2DAanalytics.com. 2DA.us. 2DA.us. So you can go find them there. If you guys want to reach out to them, go to their website, find them on LinkedIn, shoot them a message, tell them that you listen to the podcast. Alex, it was great having you on the show, man. Cheers. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys. Let's go eat some tacos. Let's go eat some tacos. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode once again. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you could take two seconds, leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to. It really helps us just keep doing what we're doing, and we will see you on the next episode.